0: Careful, What's good, everybody? Buongiorno, buenos dias, ni hao, konichiwa, motherfuckers. Welcome, one and all, to Abacabu Cafe. I am your host, Jason Almey, and today is a very special day. I appreciate you joining me. We're going to be talking about TV episode 47, entitled A Presentiment of Farewells, Locate Madoka's First Love. I sometimes wonder what the titles of these episodes mean, but in this case, it's pretty straightforward. presentiment is a a foreboding feeling of the future. So in this case, a presentiment of farewells is a bad feeling in your gut. But you're going to have to say goodbye to somebody. It refers to Ayukua leaving Japan in this episode. Also, locate Madoka's first love means that is going on a journey today to figure out who is this Hatsukoi of uh, Ayukua's. And once we learn it's him... Ayukua spends a good bit of this episode looking for him. She's trying to locate her own first love. So there's a little bit of meaning to today's episode title. This episode originally aired February 29th of 1988. It was directed by Morikawa Shigeru. Morikawa has directed nine episodes now, including this one. He started with TV episode number seven. That was the Spark Colored Kiss episode. And most recently... Morikawa directed episode 43, the Winter Beach episode. This episode was, of course, written by Terada Kenji. This is the 24th episode that we've discussed that was written by Terada. Most recently, we discussed his writing effort on Message in Rouge in our last episode. Now, this episode was aired in late February, but visually, it does look like later spring Maybe April, maybe early May. There's no snow. Kosuga is lounging outdoors in a park without really any difficulties with colder weather. February, even in Japan, might be a little cold for napping outdoors in a park. So I think it's perfectly appropriate that we watch this episode in the later spring after getting in the remaining OVA. Kosuga announces that it's spring over an opening montage, the leaves are set against this bright white background that evokes a blinding sunlight we're going to see that a lot in this episode a very bright white background that tends to wash out foreground details it evokes the idea of just blinding sunlight we cut to an extreme close-up of kosiga 's face centered on his eye the whole thing is in sepia tones the colors are unusual they're kind of inverted here And then we cut to the red straw hat flying in the breeze behind a tree sprouting new spring leaves. So we see the opening of episode one playing out again with Kasuga leaping to catch the hat. As Kosuga catches it, the background goes bright white and Ayukua can be seen catching the hat in Kosuga's place. And this image cuts back and forth with the original image of Kosuga catching the hat so fast that it creates a strobe-like effect with Kosuga and Ayukua taking up the same place in the frame. Then we see Ayukua's feet land on the stairs and spin 180 degrees as Kosuga's did in the first episode. In a cut to a wider shot, we see Koska empty-handed where he should have been wearing the hat, while Ayuka stands behind him at the top of the stairs with the hat still on her head. Koska turns to face her and his expression says that he knows something isn't right before the image becomes a still frame and zooms out to reveal a photograph. Just like the ending of every episode, we see a photograph emerge in the frame then Kasuga wakes up. This is clearly a dream. It's his subconscious playing uh, sort of a what-if scenario. This could be the genesis of the presentiment of foreboding, of, of, of having to say goodbye, of farewells that uh, the episode title refers to. That beginning sequence sort of plays out like, what if Kasuga wasn't there to catch the red straw hat? What if it wasn't him? And that's a question that this episode asks. That's a question that this episode is concerned with. We have a time travel scenario in this episode. Ayuko gives Kasuga a hard time about sleeping at noon, to which he retorts, that's why it's called a noontime nap. Now, Ayuko recognizes the phrase. It's like she's unexpectedly reminded of something from her past, the way something jogs your memory. This is an important detail because it foreshadows the time travel plotline of this episode and the next one. Kasuga becomes a nervous wreck when he learns that Ayuko was there underneath that tree waking him up because she was supposed to meet her first love there, her Hatsukoi. We cross-dissolve somewhat clumsily to Kasuga studying with Shikaru. I don't know why he's not studying with Ayukawa. I guess she's got her own things to do. Even though nobody showed up to meet her, Shikaru reveals that Ayukawa had her first kiss with her Hatsukoi under that very same tree that Kasuga chose to nap under. Kasuga can't handle this knowledge. It just pushes all of his insecurity buttons. He can't handle learning that info. We cut to images from Kasuga's imagination run completely wild. We see a featureless man kind of draped in shadow, some sinister kind of like other, and he's clutching a nude Ayukua to him. He's knowing her carnally right now, and she's a willing participant. He's imagining her with some other guy romantically. Intercut- we see an extreme close-up of Kasuga's eye again, which finally begins to rapidly spin clockwise. It's not an indication that Kasuga's head is actually moving. It's a visual metaphor for what's happening inside his brain at that moment. His head is spinning figuratively. Thus, we see a literal image of his eye spinning rapidly on screen. It tells us what his emotional state is using visual semantics. We cut to the interior of the Kosuga apartment where Jinguro is being forced to wrestle, perhaps to the death, with a stuffed cat, presumably in his weight class. It's no surprise that Kurumi and Ojisan are behind this blood sport. Kurumi is, of course, chaos personified, as I've mentioned previously, and Ojisan clearly doesn't mind torturing small animals either. Manami and Kazuya's complicity as spectator slash announcer respectively helps to show us how normalized this level of savagery is in the Kasuga household. Kasuga Takashi is clobbered by jingoro when he meekly sheepishly asks the gang to keep it down so he can work none of the others have a job by the way it's just takashi takashi is forced to work to support his own hellish captivity in which he is subjugated by his own teenage daughters because they wield esp power over him and kurumi experiences neither empathy nor love A cutaway from this scene of paternal abuse, which, as a father myself, I take quite personally, shows us that amid the chaotic violence, Kostka is mentally a million miles away. He can't be bothered by any of this hubbub going on just on the other side of the wall. Normally, he'd be shouting at them to stop using the power like that, but today he couldn't care less. There's a purple guy who looks like Michael Stipe out there somewhere waiting to lay his shadowy hands on Ayukua's supple body, and that's what Kasuga can't get off of his mind. We cut to a close-up shot of Kasuga's hand holding a pencil, hovering over his schoolwork without making a move, and then back to his blank, expressionless face. It tells us that his mind is not at all on his studies. Kasuga is mindlessly muttering to himself something about six years ago ogi-san decides to send him there it turns out that you actually can bitch slap someone six years into the past at least if you're Oji san this is kind of a similar mechanic to the time slips that we've seen before in this show if there's a strong enough jolt to the noggin kasuga's power causes him to slip through time as well as space it's as with an accidental fall you don't always know exactly how or where you're going to land in space. A time slip works that way as well. Prior to this episode, we haven't seen a controlled time slip, one that was directed to a specific point in time, but Ojisan, he's a very experienced esper and he can do some things that none of the other characters can, clearly. It seems like a powerful Esper like oji can control the time in which you land, kind of like an experienced uh, judoka or grappler can control where they throw an opponent in space. They can direct an opponent through space to land in a particular spot. oji can do that with the time slip. It supports my general theory that Esper powers get stronger with either age and or use, like a practice makes perfect kind of a thing. The time slip itself is accompanied by a rapid-fire montage of images, some of which have little context other than to communicate semantics. We see a young person firing a starting pistol. We see a large bell struck so it would make a gong. We see a boxer eating a hook to the face. Then we see Kosiga falling to earth above a nondescript town that could be his own six years earlier – We then see a nuclear explosion detonating. All of these are set against various saturated background hues and visually communicate the jolt that Kosaka experiences from Oji-san sending him back, rocketing six years into the past. It communicates the sensation of that through this montage. Some of the images that were shown do have a narrative context, though. We see images of a nude Ayukua barely concealing her modesty, giving Kasuga the come-hither look and doing that little come-here thing with your index finger. Kasuga himself pops onto the screen, his face is comically contorted, a bandage across his nose and hearts in his eyes. These images would seem to reveal some of Kasuga's inner, maybe even subconscious, workings. After a few quick establishing shots showing some construction equipment, Kosuga awakens mid-fall. At first, he's oriented right side up on our screen. Then the camera rotates 180 degrees, which positions Kosuga upside down. Then the background fades in from a blinding white, evoking bright sunlight, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, to an abstract blue background. Whizzing past Kosuga shows us that he's falling. It's a kind of a complicated reveal to show us that Casca still plummeting to earth, but it keeps the continuity going with the montage from just a few seconds earlier. At this point in the episode, it's obvious that Morikawa is having a little bit of fun creatively. There's a little bit of an expressionism thing going on here with that blue background that evokes him falling. You can't actually tell what any of those things are that are whizzing past Casca in the background. It's abstract shapes and colors in blue tones and they're whizzing past Kosuga. It gives us the impression he's falling. As Kosuga wanders off the construction site, we see our first indication that something's different. We see a poster advertising the forthcoming construction, and it reveals that it's actually Kosuga's apartment building. It hasn't been built yet. After witnessing what he thought was his beloved Ayukua, kissing a man who must have been her first love. Kasuga is framed at an odd angle. The camera is tilted slightly, which places Kasuga's head towards the corner of the frame. Despite the fact that he's standing upright, he's standing on level ground, but visually they place him askew on the screen and it reflects the turmoil that he's beginning to feel. Things are off for Kasuga, very off for Kasuga right now. When he runs from the scene... In an emotional panic, the screen is white and filled with lines that move across the screen towards the camera, towards the viewer, in an abstract simulation of Koska's trajectory. It's kind of visually similar to some of the winter beach uh, sequences towards the end. And here Koska runs literally into the young version of Yusaku, and he meets a young Shikaru here too. Yusaku is a total wimp. It contrasts his persona of the current day of 1988. Shikaru is, on the other hand, much her normal self. She's brutalizing Yusaku even after he was knocked off his tricycle by Kasuga. She is as abusive and mean to him as ever. While she yells at him about how boys are supposed to be strong, you get the idea that his whole persona in 1988, this tough martial arts dude breaking cinder blocks with his face and shit, it was adopted by him because Shikaru convinced him That's how he's supposed to be as a man. That's what a man does, according to Shikaru. And she got it in him at a young age and convinced him of that. And this episode really helps form the genesis for my theory, which I've mentioned often, that Yusaku is gay and harbors latent, possibly subconscious romantic desires for Kasuga. First, he's not tough here. He's not a tough kid. He is clearly very sensitive, actually. As Shikaru points out, he's barely scraped his knee. He's not badly injured. Yusaku isn't crying about his physical pain in this moment. He's startled and he's upset that this big dude just knocked him off his tricycle and upset his ride. Yusaku is very sensitive. Shikaru hitting him only makes it worse because that adds to his emotional hurt. Yusaku is already reflexively protective of Shikato too, even though she just finished beating him, he's already a victim of Stockholm Syndrome. Meanwhile, in the then-present of 1988, we hear Ayukawa answer a phone call from her mom over an establishing shot of the outside of her house. The call continues as we cut to a close-up of a wall or a corkboard with a variety of pictures tacked to it. Almost all of the pictures contain Kasuga, now, we can tell that we're looking at pictures in Ayukua's room because the previous shot was an establishing shot of her house. So we know that the interior that we cut to is of that interior space. And that's more semantics helping to create meaning. We know that these photos that we're seeing a close-up of are, in fact, in Ayukua's room. Ayukua didn't want Casuga to know that she had framed their picture Back in episode 26, the picture that Kasuga gave her from episode 8, she had it framed in 26, and she didn't want Kasuga to know about it. But since then, she's collected even more pictures of them. They're all over her wall. This phone call is expository. It's helping to build the plot for us. It functions to remove Ayukua. This is the presentiment of farewells. This is the farewell. Ayukua is finally leaving for America. The threat of Ayukua leaving Japan is finally coming to fruition. The photos are thus meant as a reminder of the life that Ayukua will be leaving behind in Japan. Ayukua herself will be literally out of the picture. It's a figure of speech usually, but it's got literal meaning here. When we finally cut to Ayukua, we see her standing in front of her room's large window with a blinding light pouring in and washing out some of the clarity in the image. Images containing this bright blinding light have become a visual motif in this episode, through their repetition. Things are coming to light in this episode. People are going to learn about Kasuga's power pretty soon. Secrets revealed. Light shining in on the characters. It's an image of secrets being revealed. Possibly. At the end of the conversation, we get a sense that something's wrong with uh, Mr. Ayukua. And it's another reason why watching Message in Rouge immediately preceding this episode is a good idea, in my opinion. It helps to establish... Ayukua's relationship with her father, they have this daddy-daughter thing going, which is really beautiful. As a father of girls, it's a beautiful thing. And so if there's something to matter with him, she's going to come running. There's nothing that's going to keep her in Japan if her father is seriously ill. When we cut back to 1982, Kasuga finally realizes he's been sent to the past. Not when he meets an eight-year-old version of Yusaku, not when he meets the eight-year-old version of Shikaru, not when he saw them interact, just like modern Shikaru and Yusaku do, it's only when he tries to buy ice cream with a coin that hadn't yet been minted in the spring of 82, that's when the colors on screen are replaced with red to indicate that it is finally dawned on Kasuga. That crazy fall he just experienced was temporal. Yusaku continues to menace Kasuga. Even his wimpy past self threatens Kasuga. He says he's going to cry unless Kasuga buys him ice cream. So it's different than the threats of 1987-88. This time he's just going to make a scene inside the restaurant. Now when he realizes he's in the past, Kasuga runs back to the park where he thought he'd seen Ayukua making out with some random dude. We see splotches of clustered green ovals race through the frame between Casaga and the viewer. They give the impression of foliage to tell us that he's back at the park without realistically depicting trees or bushes or foliage. The aesthetic of this episode is very expressionistic. I mentioned that a few minutes ago. Colors and shapes are used to convey action, like the movement of Costca falling or running, as well as to evoke images of location. Those green splotches evoke leaves on trees, which make us think back to the park that we were previously shown. Camera positioning continues to be off-kilter, putting the plane of the ground at an angle across the screen rather than keeping it flat or perfectly horizontal as is more traditional. It conveys that Kasuga is not in the right time. Things are askew for Kasuga still. Back in the then present of 1988, we learned that Ayukawa is going to America for an indeterminate amount of time because her father's not well. We never learn exactly what's wrong with him whether he had uh, some kind of uh, event like a heart attack or a stroke, or uh, it's got to be something worse than the flu, right? He'd be over it by the time she landed. So I don't know if it's some kind of diagnosis. We, we never find out what's wrong with him, and there's no reason to think that something happens to him, that he passes or anything like that. But it's bad enough that she needs to rejoin her parents in America, each time we cut back to 1988, it gives us a little bit more detail or exposition to help build the conflict, and this is a bit of a reversal of the traditional narrative where flashbacks are used to reveal such info, flashing back to the past, while the main narrative is happening in the present day. In this episode, the main narrative is the past. 1982 is the main narrative, and how Kosiga's actions in today's episode and next week will help to shape the world that he's known since moving to town and meeting Ayukua in episode one. So it's really kind of a satisfying time loop narrative that's going to bring us right back to the beginning of the series. In a parallel of the episode's opening shot, Kasuga is awoken from a nap under the tree of memories, again by Ayukua. This time, it's 10-year-old Ayukua. The parallels in shot composition and on-screen action reinforces the themes of history repeating itself, of fate. I also thought it was awesome that Kasuga initially thinks young Ayukua is a boy. He like tries to chase her off. He's like, get out of here. Leave me alone. I'm trying to take a nap. This is where he says the line about the noontime nap for the first time and gets it stuck in Ayukua's brain. We see that Ayukua has always been a gifted athlete, at least as far back as 1982. She spends a lot of her youth outside honing her athleticism. She's running around playing outside and doing what healthy youngsters do, apparently She's not just playing soccer in the park. She's actually fighting entire soccer teams of dudes that are way older than her that for some reason think it's cool to pick on 10-year-old girls. We never see any kind of reason why this whole group of of older dudes wants her dead, but but they do, and uh, it may or may not have something to do with soccer. Who knows? The filmmakers squeeze in a little bit of ham-fisted exposition here. Kasuga has a flashback of oji warning him not to interfere with the events of the past on the pain of not being able to return to the future. That's the very same oji who just sent Kasuga to the past on a total whim. I'm going to smack you in the back of the head and send you back to the past on a whim, but make sure you don't interfere. It's very important you might not be able to return. I don't know about that. Back in 88, Ayukawa is giving away some of her clothes to the twins, and it would indicate that she plans to be away for a longish time. She says it's too much to carry. She's having to leave the next day, so she doesn't have a ton of time to pack. But if you're only going away for a couple of weeks, if you're leaving the country to travel for a few weeks, then you would just wear the stuff that you can't take with you when you return. You wouldn't need to give it away because you'll be back in a couple of weeks. So to me, this means she doesn't plan on returning at least very soon. Now, Kasuka Takashi comes in with a where could Kasuga be? And then we cut to Kasaga getting pelted with soccer balls six years in the past. At this moment, the soccer hooligans have Ayukua cornered at a steep drop off to a construction site, which is, of course, something that you would absolutely see in public parks all the time. There's no fence, there's no signs, just a nice field for picnics and soccer right next to a 30 foot drop onto exposed rebar. That doesn't make a ton of sense either but again the filmmakers needed to be this way and of course the soccer hooligans don't want to stop at bullying they're actively trying to murder a 10-year-old girl for no apparent reason whatsoever and when she makes a break for it Ayuko doesn't run toward the hooligans and away from the edge of doom She instead strafes the edge of doom, maintaining her dangerous proximity to a 30-foot fall and, again, exposed rebar, which is certainly not a tactic our smartest character would take. Really, these filmmakers just need to get her falling in slow motion over the edge. Don't think about it too much, Jason, or anybody else out there listening. Don't think about it. Public parks, Oftentimes, just drop off into open construction sites because that's safe for children. Don't think too much about it. Importantly, in this episode, we finally get to see how people in his community would react to Kasuga's power were he to use it openly. He teleports dramatically, leaving behind lightning in his place to save Ayukua. He's done that a few times before. He's teleported to save Ayukua I believe in episode 20, the episode where uh, he and she are stranded on the beach. The soccer hooligans understandably run away in terror. They just saw a man disappear and lightning take his place. Uh, But now Kasuga's secret is out. When he goes to help her up, of course, he feels a little bit of Ayukua's booby. And I'll give Kasuga a pedo pass here because he doesn't even realize he's dealing with a girl yet. He certainly wasn't attempting to cop a feel on a 10-year-old, so that's good for Kasuga. It means that Kasuga used his power to intervene and save a stranger. He didn't even realize that he was saving Ayukua, and it shows us that he has a high degree of empathy. He wasn't going to let this person who he thought was a young boy get hurt. And possibly killed by falling into a construction site. So he helped this person, sight unseen. He didn't know that there was anything for him to gain from it. It's just his sense of empathy. He doesn't like to see people hurt. It's the same reason he doesn't like saying no to people because he doesn't like seeing people hurt or upset we see some ideas about gender and gender presentation represented here in Kosuga's subsequent conversation with Ayukua as he's realizing that uh, she is a girl. He clearly interpreted young male from her attire, her haircut, possibly even uh, the way she was behaving, bouncing the soccer ball around her athleticism. It clearly didn't ping female in his mind. He asks her why she doesn't act more like a girl and Ayukua gets a little defensive, she asks, how does he expect a girl to behave? She clearly does not consider that she's been wrong in her presentation of her own gender. She seems to bristle at Kasuga's suggestion that the way she is isn't particularly girlish in his mind. It's an interesting window into what Kasuga imagines when he thinks of the genders Kasuga then proceeds to describe the Ayukua of 1988 to the Ayukua of 1982 in his description of the ideal girl. It seems like no big deal, the conversation. It's kind of short, but it's actually a pivotal exchange in shaping the Ayukua character that we know and love. In a very explicit way, the filmmakers are telling us that Kasuga might have just designed his own dream girl. At least he didn't do it on purpose. After describing his type, Kasuga is shocked to learn that the tomboy he's been chatting with is none other than his beloved Ayukua Madoka. Cut back to 1988, just as in Message in Rouge, we see Ayukua running up the 100 stairs. Even though she was just seen at Kasuga's apartment, which really means she ought to be descending them, unless I've been smoking crack for like the first 46 episodes of this show— I thought the apartment was at the top of the stairs. That's why Kasuga was climbing the stairs in episode one. That's why Kasuga has often met Ayukua at the top of the stairs, because he's returning home and she catches him there. It doesn't make any sense that she would be running back up the stairs. oji uses telepathy, just like Kazuya usually does, to communicate with Ayukua out of the blue, which shocks her. None of the ESP powers seem to be outside of Oji-san's skill set. As he's asking Ayukua if she truly wants to see Kasuga again, we see leaves blowing across the frame. And then a cutaway to the sky shows the same type of leaves blowing through the frame as the camera pans to reveal Kasuga in 1982. It's a parallel that acts as a visual bridge. Kasuga is standing at the top of the 100 stairs, ready to throw himself down and try to time slip again. Meanwhile, six years in the future, Ayuka is standing in the very same place. And this cut, this edit, makes it very obvious to us that there's this continuity, this spatial continuity here. It's not a temporal continuity because they're six years apart, but they're standing in the exact same place. And we see that with that visual language of the, the leaves blowing through, the cut, the leaves continue to blow through. It's actually a pretty nifty cut, and it's fairly subtle as well. This also tells us that this is probably the moment that Oji-san sent Ayukua back into the past. Now, Kasuga does wind up accidentally throwing himself down the 100 stairs, some of the 100 stairs. He doesn't go down all 100. That would be pretty painful. He falls down a few of them, but he doesn't time slip. He muses that maybe he really is stuck there in 1982, but it may also be that his work in the past is not yet done. This may be an aspect of the power that it works when it's supposed to work. He won't slip back to 1988 until it's the right time to go. Because there's an important scene coming up. Kosaka still has a few things left to do in the past in order to set things up for episode 1 in 1987. Now, Yusaku approaches, comes running up the 100 stairs, he's crying his eyes out, and, of course, Shikaru bonks him, like she usually does, But Kasuga chastises her. He tries to comfort Yusaku and talk to him about why Yusaku is so upset. And his kind treatment of Yusaku here plants that seed in Yusaku so that in the future he will subconsciously remember Kasuga as a kind and compassionate male figure. He will act harshly to Kasuga because he's been conditioned by Shikaru's repeated beatings over the course of years He behaves in ways that she's conditioned him to believe are befitting of a man, so he doesn't know how to deal with his feelings of romantic love for Kasuga. His overarching conflict with Kasuga is born here in this episode. And we see that completed when Kasuga protects him a little bit from Shikaru and then treats him with kindness and compassion. And then Kasuga needs to go save Ayukua from the soccer hooligans, who are somehow cured of their terror that Kasuga might be an alien capable of frying them, And when he leaps over a handrail to bypass the stairs, he falls on his ass. This may be why Ayukua was always rather fond of his pratfalls. She always smiles, maybe knowingly, when Kasuga finds a mop bucket on his head or something. And when Kasuga is cornered and ensnared in the nets, the figures of the soccer hooligans become colorless. They're rendered in lines only, while the background behind them is red. It reflects Kasuga's panic in that moment. We've seen the red background earlier when Kasuga was panicked to learn that he had time-slipped somehow back to 1982. At this point, Kasuga says, f*** it, he can't go home anyway, so he puts on a light show. He really opens the powers up in full view of everyone, including Ayukawa. Her yellow straw hat is blown away in the conflagration. You might note Ayukua is in a skirt. She's wearing a cute hat, by the way. I wonder why that is. She was clearly trying to impress Kasuga here. Ayukua looking up to Kasuga from a 10-year-old's perspective makes a ton more sense He's this older dude who helped her with this inexplicably violent gang of high school soccer players and saved her when she fell and almost died and again came to the rescue when she was captured by this silly gang. And also he can do magic. He's actually very impressive in this context. So from 10 years old, she's always looked up to and admired Kosuga Ayukua has always had a very positive view of Kosuga throughout the series and sometimes it was hard for me to explain that, even to myself. But this episode shows us that she very likely carries with her a child's admiration for him. He's kind of her hero here. So again, we can only conclude that Kosiga is very much crafting the conditions of 1987 that he experiences when he moves to town in episode one. Why is Ayukua so nice to him at the beginning of episode one? That point is driven home when Kosiga purchases for Ayukua the red straw hat, which is probably the single most important visual motif in this entire series. Ayuko is once again dressed in her tomboy outfit. I don't know when she changed clothes, but she wordlessly kneels beside Kasuga and kisses him as he lounges under the tree of memories. That's her first kiss after all. Kasuga finally understands he's finally found her Hatsukoi. Kasuga was wondering at that moment what changes he must have wrought on the timeline and how his actions that day must have impacted Shikaru, Yusaku, and Ayukua, and maybe whether now they'll be different from how he knew them as a result of his actions in the past. After the kiss, however, when Ayukua is asking to meet him again, it all clicks for Kasuga. He was always a part of their past. Ayukua's promise to meet her first love six years later was always a pact between her and Kasuga. It's just that pre time slip, Kasuga hadn't made the promise yet. He didn't know about it, but Ayukua had made the promise, and she did. Ayukua of 1988 appears in that instant in a bolt of lightning. Her appearance in 1982 is a lot more graceful than Kasuga's. She doesn't fall from the sky and land in a pile of sand, but it gives us a perfect cliffhanger ending i really wish orange road did a little bit more of these over their run It's a lot of fun also i find the time travel story here also a lot of fun oftentimes time travel stories can be pretty lame they're used to reverse narrative elements that have already happened undo things um, But in this episode, it's really done right by revealing that Kosaka's actions in the past helped to establish the world that he experienced in 1987 and 1988. Some of the things that we've seen throughout the show get set up here in this episode, and it's rather seamless. His time travel was always an element of the Orange Road narrative. There are other uses of time travel. Back to the Future comes up. I mean, if you're listening to this show, chances are you like 80s media and Back to the Future is a classic trilogy of the 80s. And in Back to the Future, Marty McFly, of course, goes back to 1955. He meets people like his parents, like an earlier version of his friend Doc Brown, and he makes certain changes as he interacts with the various people, as he does certain things. He invents rock and roll. I mean, he, he, he makes changes in the past that are reflected when he does travel back to 1985, his present, at the end of the film. You see that his parents are more well-adjusted and uh, successful human beings that are a lot more happy with life than they were at the very beginning. He makes changes to his timeline, and he experiences those changes at the end of the film. He's the only one who remembers the previous timeline. Maybe Doc Brown does a little bit, too. I don't know how that works. But in the case of a time travel story like Back to the Future, the character goes back in time, does things those things are then reflected in changes to the timeline when he reemerges in his present. Here, we have a different mechanic. Of course, he's not using a DeLorean with a a fancy flux capacitor to travel. There's no technology involved, which is another thing I've always loved about the the time travel mechanic in Orange Road is that there's no technology involved. We don't need a, a mad scientist character. It's just part of this power set that you get when you're a Kasuga. And and so I love that. And then I also like the idea that Kasuga's presence in the past was always an element of the storyline. How else did Ayukua get the red straw hat in the beginning of episode one? There's really no other explanation than the fact that Kasuga bought it for her in 1982. And it's because Orange Road follows Kasuga's point of view throughout the entirety of the series... We don't see the events of 1982 until he travels back there and initiates them, the 16-year-old version of Kasuga. In 1988, has to time slip back to 1982 before we, as the viewer, get to see those events unfold. But for the rest of the characters, characters like Ayukua and Shikaru and Yusaku, those events had already taken place and unfolded years before the series began. So I always enjoy elements of time travel stories where the future and the past overlap, they interact, um, but it, it helps when the writers manage to interweave these elements without things starting to feel paradoxical. And they don't feel paradoxical here, even though Casca's kind of caused some things, he, he causes some things that, that he has already experienced, but it still works really well and doesn't feel paradoxical. Now, Ayuka's appearance in 1982 as the episode closes also shows us that non-espers can time slip as well, at least with the help of Oji-san. So she wouldn't have been able to time slip on her own, but apparently Oji-san has the power to send non-espers back in time as well and it is somewhat of a bold episode it's visually there are uh, colors and and shapes that are expressive i mean just go back and look at expressionist painting of the 19th century and you'll see very similar visual elements that evoke a meaning without being a photorealistic representation of that thing and, and so there's some artistry here too there's Even some rapid-fire Ayukua nudes, which is somewhat bold of this episode. It's bold narratively, too, because Ayukua is finally learning about Koska's power. We're at the end of the series. I guess the filmmakers figure they can do whatever now. They can blow the lid off this power thing. And they do. And it's an episode of Orange Road that that offers up a lot to think about, at least from a sci-fi perspective. If you want to lay in your bed at night as you're falling asleep and think about time travel, this is the episode to go to. But what you really ought to do, instead of lying in bed, awake at night, thinking about time travel, what you ought to do is do the thing that's going to help you sleep at night. It's going to help you get rest. You're not going to lay awake staring at your ceiling. If you head over to patreon.com slash Team Almy and become a patron of Team Almy Studios, I tell you, it'll take all the weight off your shoulders and you'll sleep like a baby by supporting team Almy studios also we'll send you free swag that's something that i do you'll get stickers you'll get pins you'll get buttons uh that's just what i do to show you my appreciation for you because you make this whole studio possible for me so i appreciate that and i also want to encourage everybody to please check out creatures of the night podcast i will put a link in the show notes so that you can easily access that show. It's a kooky, strange, paranormal, conspiracy theory show. We just have a lot of fun. Also, I'm revamping a podcast called Movie Mass, Pop Culture Mass. I'll include a link to that in the show notes as well, so you can check that out. But I've got other podcasts for you to listen to is what I'm trying to say. So there's other things that you can listen to during the week besides just Abacabu Cafe, other other entertaining podcasts, I'll make your drive go a little faster. So check the show notes for those links. I want to say thank you very much to my patrons. I want to say thank you very much to anybody who's listening to this episode. If you can hear my voice right now, thank you. Thank you truly from the bottom of my heart. Next week, last episode, episode 48, y'all. It feels like a milestone. It really does. And yet this show is not even close to ending. I've got so many more episodes planned. We're going to do giant extra length episodes on both movies, Anohi and Shinkor. So you've got those to look forward to. Those are going to be at least an hour each, bare minimum. Those are going to be like double length episodes because there's a lot to say about those two films. Also, I'm going to be doing wrap-up episodes talking about various elements of the anime. I'll do some character analyses. I'll talk about themes and motifs again with examples now that we've seen the show. And then... We're going to start talking about the manga there's 150 plus chapters of the manga to talk about so there is no lack of content for this podcast for years to come and i'm not exaggerating when i say that so thank you for listening thus far and please stick around in the meantime i got a little bit more music for you guys so please check this out and i'll see you guys next week for episode 48 adios everybody